0: I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's gonna make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course you are never gonna miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much.
1: And you're always changing and the world around you is always changing. I mean, we've just gone through obviously a massive global change where people who could adapt and be resilient did well. And obviously, it's it's much more complex than that. But adaptability and resilience are essential, right? So the concussion, in a lot of ways, forced me to learn how to cope with life in ways um, that you know I had I had to in order to sort of survive. And then the goal is, can you go through these and ultimately thrive?
0: Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And we kick off part two of two with my conversation with Paul Atia, And I'm spending time on this conversation because I think that it is an important life lesson, whether or not you have endured a concussion or some other trauma in your life, part of having a well-lived life and having some of the Uh, challenges uh, herein that go with it is that we are going to be faced at some point with some kind of traumatic event. In this case, Paul's uh, traumatic event was a physical one that led into the spiral that you are all very familiar with now if you've listened to part one. Um, But it could be anything. It could be a death of a family member. It could be um, a divorce. It could be anything and everything that happens in life. And I really admire... Paul's framework i admire his mind which is paradoxically what was most impacted from the trauma and so in this episode part 2 of 2 you're going to hear the the rebound if you will the comeback so we'd start off talking about how the how he reconciles how he is today Versus how he was before the accident. And then we jump into all of the strategies, all of the frameworks, all of the things that Paul has developed over the time that he sustained the concussion through his healing, what worked for him, what didn't. And this is the part that I know we spent a lot of time talking about who Paul was prior to the accident. And I think that that's an important feature for you to understand. Type A, really driven, success oriented kind of guy, which many of us can relate to. I know, you know, listeners of the podcast, if you're anything like me, you're a type A driven personality. So you can find yourself in many ways and relate in many ways to Paul's accolades, his drive for success. And now we talk about how he brought himself back from the depths of despair, let's say, uh, and the situation that he was in. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation and looking forward to hearing your your stories and your reactions to the story. Please let us know. Leave us a, re- a rating or review on iTunes or, or Spotify or YouTube, however you like to consume our Conversation. And again, without further delay, please enjoy part two two of my conversation with Paul (music) Atia. is such free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. My my question there is how do you how do you reconcile that, right? So how do you reconcile that what is maybe more of an egoic comparison for who you are now versus who you were and you know maybe your love or lust for achievement is now like any anything that you're doing you know you mentioned if your heart rate was over 95 you would get yeah. lightheaded or exactly. nauseous right so any type of progress um can almost seem like insignificant and inconsequential versus what you used to be able to do right was there that yes. did you have that kind of dialogue yeah i well? did
1: I- I did. I want to come back to that one because that's an important one. Cause I actually had to find a way to make that work for me as opposed to against me. Cause if you don't learn to get a grip on that, you're screwed. Yeah. Like think about that for a second, right? Like if, if we actually take this, so, so I'm talking about this framework from a concussion standpoint, but I think it, it, it's just the same dynamic that's happening for a number of different reasons for lots of different people. Like you don't have to have a concussion to experience what I'm describing. It's the same thing as aging. Right. So all of a sudden it's like, wow, it's different now that I'm 65 or There's 70. There's a loss. 65. Anyone who's
0: lost anything.
1: Right. There's a regression of something. Right. Yeah. And then I think it's the exact same framework that, um, you know, I've talked to my wife about this lots. If you're, you know, you, you're postpartum or you're, you know, you, are you the same woman after you've had kids as you are before? You obviously, you know, Stephanie, in your work with, you know, talking about, you know, menopause, like there are changes that are occurring to you. You can't outrun father time, of course. And so I think it's very, very important, and, and I think this was sort of for me. And we're going to come to this obviously in due course. But this we're we're giving all this information of how low it was and what was actually happening. But the story does end on a positive note because it ends with this notion and this mantra that as you learn to cope with a concussion, you are actually giving an op- being given an opportunity to learn to cope with life. I've talked a little bit about it. I sort of had this like this X and Y, you know, I used to be this. I if I'm not that, but I was like, I have to do everything. I I think another big turning point for me, and this is probably one of the my for me, at least this was a framework that really, really helped me as I went through this. And I this took me a while to get to it, like a, a while, like, you know, a couple of years kind of thing. Maybe I can't remember exactly when I sort of realized this is going to be my approach to this, but it certainly was in early days. Early days were, you know, mass confusion, significant disappointment, um, trying to mitigate all these different things, y- you know, the things I had to do to try. I remember I had my law school reunion at this point. I remember calling a really good friend of mine sort of saying, hey, can you like stand beside me a lot? Like, I'm very afraid that like. I had to tell her sort of like what I was going through, and I didn't really want to share it, but I did. And I said like I'm very worried that I'll be having a conversation with someone, and then I'll just go blank. My mind will go blank. Can you sort of like have my back and sort of like usher me out of there? So no one like I'm so fearful that everyone I went to law school with will really like think I'm you now stupid or whatever. You know, um, I remember anything that I did. You know, even that I was like I need to like. Planned my parking spot well in advance. I stayed in a hotel for something that you otherwise wouldn't have to stay in a hotel for, because I was like, I won't be able to get back home. Like I was genuinely fearful I wouldn't be able to get in my car and find my way home. I did a talk on family business because I was now working in a family business, and in that world, that was like um, I think a year and a half, almost two years after the concussion. And as I described it, you know, sort of in that essay that I sent you, what was so fascinating about that is to the outside world, when they saw me give that talk on a stage at a conference. It was 20 minutes long and you would have thought this guy's on fire he's great like because i could put it together for 20 minutes but that's a great example because it's something i had done a lot in my life of a juxtaposition of who i was after and who i was before so for that 20 minutes i looked like i was functioning at the same level what people don't know is you know um the you know the metaphor the image is the duck swimming along the water you have no idea how hard the feet under the water are churning and so what people don't know of course when i gave that talk um i had to practice that talk 27 times in order to deliver it and not even memorize it but just to deliver it whereas previously i would have practiced that once or twice and been fine you know number two even though the talk was in toronto at a location 40 minutes from my house i actually went to a hotel and checked myself in the hotel the night before because i was convinced i was so anxious over it that i was convinced i would sleep in the morning or i was convinced that i couldn't get there or i was convinced that even if i did get there the 45 minute drive if there was traffic would make me so anxious that i'd collapse like I had that much anxiety over anything that tested me. And again, juxtapose that with a criminal prosecutor who would like, you know, ride his bike to work in the middle of winter and get into the courthouse two minutes before court would open and have the confidence to be like, I'll throw on my robes and I'll roll into court. And they're lucky to have me there. Kind of, you know, like I'm ready to go. I'm ready to sort of like throw the gloves off and fight here. Um, you know, that talk previously in my life would have been something i would have done in the morning i would have lifted weights for an hour or two before i would have like gone for a bike ride later in that day i would have had four phone calls on the way i would have grabbed lunch with somebody and then i would have you know you know you know put four kids to bed you know with with the help of ruth ann kind of thing you know but like whereas and then i would have had a busy day then that talk was my week i had to take three days off leading up to it with anything and i had to take three days off and then that talk was my day That's all. I remember leaving that talk, going outside. I couldn't even sit in the rest of the conference. It was too overwhelming intellectually. It was just, I was just, I was so emotionally drained. So there's an example of a before and after where something that would have, I would have done off the corner of my desk that would have been an energizing fun challenge became like the hardest thing I had done. Um, And there was just like an endless list of those things that weren't even positive like that. So as I said, driving was really tough. Noise was really tough. I would say the hardest part, actually, I would say the hardest part and the thing that was the most discouraging, because it's one thing if you're no longer productive, but the hardest part was I became, um, really, really, um, ragey and really irritable. And that was something which I'm, which I'm happy to talk about. I think it's important to talk about this because your hormones change and you become a different person and rage is, um, rage is bad. Like rage is really upsetting. Um, obviously to everybody around it, we all know that, but it was really weird to be the ragey person. So just, just to give context, I've always been very intense, but I've always described myself. And I think people who know me well, even people I went up against in court would be like, Paul's an angry, like Paul's a happy, angry guy. Like even, even when I'm mad, I'm kind of (laughs) happy. So like, if we were in court and you try to pull some move, I'd be like, all right, I am going to get destroyed. Like, like I'd almost have a smile on my face as I'm saying how I'm going to try to bury you in the courtroom. Like it's, 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 it was almost sport to me. Um. I had, you know, certainly anger and, you know, rage as a kid in high school, you know, as I was, you know, playing football, lifting weights, you know, probably got a healthy injection of testosterone, just being like a, you know, a a male sort of with, you know, lots of dopamine, whatever the chemical thing that's going on in terms of a guy who, you know, benefited a lot from, you know, you know, good genetics. I had a ton of energy. Um, But even that rage, I channeled really well in high school for the most part, you know, certainly not all the time, but. You know, I certainly grew out of that by the time I was 19 or 20 and sort of, you know, figured out, you know, sports and then of course law and competition, my energy go there. But post concussion, um, this would hands down be probably the most upsetting part of it. It's one thing to be incompetent. It's another thing to have high anxiety, but those almost make you go into a shell and they don't impact other people, right? Like you sort of just like you, I would just withdraw a lot from situations or the anxiety would just have me like sitting on the side of the road crying a lot or whatever. But the rage was really hard because what caused the rage almost inevitably was, um, something that was like a point zero 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 one as a stimulus, like in terms of what should cause the rage. So your response to it was always disproportionate to it.
0: Right. Right.
1: But rage, um, is such a strong emotion that it gets a grip of you. So, um,
0: I am, Very I am so
1: primal and I'm so thankful. That again, and this is sort of I never actually thought about it until the sort of this moment, if I was focused on something and you made a sound, it wasn't just like uh, I could ignore it, which is what a normal human could do, right? Sort of like a healthy brain can sort of like tune out the sound like you're singing in the background or you're you know, shooting a basketball as I'm over here fixing, you know, the car. Most people can sort of tune that out um the next level of that if i can't tune it out i politely say hey stephanie can you stop shooting the basketball or can you turn your iphone off or hey you're on the phone with your sister-in-law on speaker can you put it you know it's it's hard you know um i i couldn't tune it out and i didn't have the wherewithal at the time to even like be calm enough to actually say turn it down i would literally just feel like you had actually taken a set of symbols and smash them as loud as you could, like until, until your hands bled beside my ear repeatedly with the deliberate intent to annoy me. So. You know, one image of a situation that I think every parent and a lot of people to is, is, is putting in car seats in your in your car, which, by the way, I don't know who's inventing these things, but something <laughs> needs to like, revisit that because I have not met a parent who has found that to be a remotely pleasant task for anybody. Concussion, no concussion. Every parent that I've ever talked to is like, I swear to God, if I find the human that invented that UAS system in the cars, I'm going to like you know, have, I have homicidal thoughts towards. bring
0: their neck. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I remember as a guy with, you know, four kids, um, four young kids, I've changed a lot of car seats in a lot of cars. And I remember sort of like, but if you think about it, you know, and anyone who's done this knows it, but even if you haven't, you can sort of get it. You actually have to focus a lot of your intention on one thing because you have to sort of get this thing, you tighten the seat belt. And then so then like the leash is as short as possible, like the rope is as short as possible, and you have to wrap it around this thing to click and, all the while in your mind, you know, you can't cheat because you don't want to like have your kid fly out of a car, right? So right, there's this right. pressure in your mind of like, I got to get this right, but it's just so you're just focusing all your energy and and you're like in an uncomfortable position. And then every parent's experience this. There's kids around you yelling because the reason you're changing the car seat is because you're late to swimming or soccer or whatever, right? So take that life situation and. I, the the rage that I would feel towards my kids making innocent noises in the background, innocent noises being like slapping their brother in the head or asking a question, dad, are we going yet? Or did you get, so, like, was not normal dad anger, was not normal, like, hey, guys, be quiet. Well, It was literally like they're trying to kill me, like they're trying to injure me. And it, what then happens is you have this wicked cycle where you recognize, I would recognize this is this is an overreaction but I still feel it and I feel it so real and so raw that I can't make it go away. But I know it's wrong and I know it's bad and I want to act on it but if I act on it like CAS will be here, you know Children's Aid Society will be here, Children's Aid Services will be here to to take my kids away. Um but I can't make it go away and I feel it so real and then the the really bad thought comes in of like holy man oh man you are damaged goods. Oh man, you are like you are not worthy of these kids. Like, you we're are still proud. here. Oh, we're man. still working oh, here. we are still damaged. Like you used to be yeah. a smart guy. You used to like you used to be calm under pressure. You used to, and then you're just like, oh my gosh. And so I think that sense of an awareness of your deficiency, it's like grief in one, a way. It's like one of yeah, the, yeah, Sorry, an awareness of um awareness of your deficiency, an awareness of of the of the um maybe the downstream consequences of that deficiency and then the thought of like because you're so deficient you're sort of in some way shape or form damaged goods unworthy you know and if you sort of tie that back into aging or tie that back into any injury recovery and all that and then i think what was so tough for for me at least and i think tough for a lot of people and you know one of the things you and i said we hope we can help accomplish for people today or help at least give people today is um no one told me there was like a light at the end of the tunnel so I had no idea, like in your mind, and if someone just said, hey, post concussion, pick a random number for 18 months, you'll be a bag of bricks. And for the next 18 months, you'll be ragey. But if you do the following things by year three, you'll actually come out of this. Then you're like, oh, this sucks, but I'll come out of it.
0: But you're like, I'm a, I'm a temporary resident at Concussion Island. I know this is going to end at that's some right. point. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, that's right. So I never had that. I was just no one really. I just didn't know. And mm. so you just start to think this is the new me. You know another one that I think is worth sharing, um, and this one is really interesting too, in terms of like getting good information from good people, was um, I'm driving and my wife's in the passenger seat. Everyone can sort of visualize this, and I go look at the side view mirror on the passenger side. So I look over to my right to look at the rear view mirror because I want to change lanes. And just at that moment, you know a kid chucks a toy or does something so Ruthann has to bend forward to pick up the toy that one of the kids launched from the back seat. And just as she leans forward, it's exactly the moment that I'm looking and suddenly I can't see out of the side view mirror because Ruth blocking it. So to the normal brain, you process this and you say, Hey, my wife didn't mean to do that. She didn't mean to block my view. You know, the kid in the back threw this thing up. This is just normal and she's going to move back in a millisecond and then I'll see it and then I'll be able to change lanes. I literally viewed that event as like the greatest offense someone could commit towards me. I had, when that occurred, this was maliciously,
0: maliciously predicated. And totally,
1: this is like, I had a response that was like a nine and a half out of 10 in my mind of how angry I would get because I'm trying to look at that. Like the moment that I'm trying to look, you're in my way. Why would you get in my way? And so I'm so thankful that when those things happened, I had this crazy rage that was like, how dare Ruthann do that? Like, how dare someone block my – are you – do you, like – what are you – like, it is the greatest, the most offensive thing you could do. It's the most harmful, offensive, as you said, malicious thing you could do. And – what I since, what I since learned, which has been so helpful to learn, I learned this from another osteopath, a guy named Sam Gibbs, who I met when I came back to oh, Toronto. Oh, Sam's
0: a this. good friend of mine.
1: And he was just so helpful to me. Um, and here's a great example of like finding out you're not alone and finding out you're not as abnormal as you think you are and finding out you're not as damaged goods as you think you are. That's why it's so important. I think when you're struggling through these things and whether it be, I mean, there's a million different examples, but as you're struggling through these things, I think it is so, so, so important to surround yourself, not to the point where you lay on your sense of, you know, downtroddenness or victimhood, but to the point where you actually get aware of that you're not alone. Like, I'm a very big believer that, you know, all humans are unique, but no one's alone. You know, so whatever you're going through, you know, as a young mom or as as an entrepreneur or from an injury or after a death of somebody or through a divorce, whatever, like everyone's going through some set of struggles or challenges at the same time. I think it's very important to recognize you're unique, but you're not alone. So it's important to sort of learn from others. As long as you're going into that realm of learning from others, in my mind, my humble opinion, with the goal of all the things we talk about, richness, honesty, growth, improvement, you know? So there's a measure of honesty and empathy. A a colleague of mine, Ruth Steverlink, talks a lot about the importance of having people in your life who can give you the pat-pat punch. You know, so the pat-pat is just like, there, there, honey, I hear you. And then the punch is like, get your ass in gear. We're going to work on improve this, you know? So, you know, uh, uh, Ruth Steverlinks. said- I call it the shit sandwich.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so back to Sam and back to the, the rage thing. Um, I remember once I got to know Sam, which was a couple of years into this, um, he said, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I said, tell me why. And he said, well, what happens post concussion is your executive functioning is now damaged. And he said, so you have just retreated now to your very primal brain. And he said, so in your primal brain, when you looked at that rear view mirror, that side view mirror, He's like, Paul, you are a wolf staring at a bunny. That's it. Like, this is the object. This is your singular focus. And your wife just leaned in front of it and blocked you. He's like, that's another wolf who just stepped in front of you and the bunny. That's why you felt 9.5 out of 10 of rage. I was like, are you? He's like, yep. And then I would talk to Matt Walker about this, who gave, and he said, and I said, so you're telling me that the executive functioning, so you feel the rage and then the executive functioning comes in and says, calm down, Paul. You're not a wolf chasing a bunny there's not another wolf there it's just your wife and then he, and i said that's how it works and matt walker even added more to it. he said no no it's even better than that and he can explain it in ways that of course i i can't explain nearly as well but it was this and i'm paraphrasing sort of in my own in my own words but it's this notion that no it's even better than that you know the properly functioning brain anticipates the situation as it's unfolding. So kid launches toy from the back seat, lands in the front seat. You instantly anticipate wife will lean forward, pick up toy, lean back, and am in the process, block window. I'm making turn like, and you just process this whole thing. So it's not like you have the rise in rage and then the executive function brings it down. It's just, you have no rise. You literally just roll through that seamlessly with the normal brain. But post concussion, I went massive rage Thank God I had enough still in me to not actually act on it, but I had to expend so many energy points to pull me back down from that just to put it. Yeah. it. Yeah. And I remember when I started to understand this and began to experience this and had, you know, some measure of awareness of it as I was going through it, all this kind of stuff, it finally dawned on me, um, how all these people you hear about, like in pro sports, pro football players, how their lives unravel post concussion and post sort of injury and i was like oh now i understand how this guy went from being like a guy who like you know i think of like the junior sayos of the world these guys who were described as like really high energy super positive how they end up you know getting charged with like drunk driving domestic abuse and then you know car. They have car you know that's junior sayo you know ends up taking his own life and i was like wow if they experienced what i was experiencing and then some and if they weren't surrounded whatever it is like i'm not explain, i'm not justifying of course behavior i'm explaining it you know, it like it gave me insight into like the deep struggles that people have, which is like your mind and your emotions are a really powerful thing. And when you've lost regulation of I them, when mean, you've had a hormonal change or an in- or whatever the case is, um, yeah. So that was like, I-, I could give you a million different examples of this, but these were all these different moments along the way of me really struggling with something, feeling it so strongly, having to work so hard to mitigate against it, um. In order to try to live a life of sort of some measure of um just not not causing damage not causing harm trying to figure this out you know so we've talked a lot about these but that was that's sort of the rage one that was really and of course i felt it with my kids um noise was so bad well,
0: um, you know, young kids re- that's sort of their par for the course yeah there's noise machines yeah
1: yeah so i just had to so that way when you ta- when you said earlier you have to talk to my kids that was something where i know they remember that so they know, even to this day, they still are like, Oh, don't make noise. Dad's around kind of thing. Like, it's not that bad. And obviously by the amount of noise they make, they, they're not, don't worry. They're not, they're not spending too much effort on trying to not make noise. But what I, what I mean is there were years there where, um, you know, the thing that Ruth Ann said that I, I'm glad she said it because it was her being honest. It was hard to hear, but she said, um, the hardest part for her was not knowing which husband was going to come home. And she didn't mean like I was sort of an abuse, like, Thank God I, you know, never physical, never, I, I, what I did though, my mitigation strategy was withdrawal. So that's what I did. And the way that she would sort of describe this, if she were, you know, sort of on this interview with us is she would say, it was really weird because sometimes Paul could wrestle with the kids. There'd be, you know, a loud dinner with the kids or whatever. And Paul was fine with it. And we were like, Oh, good. Paul's back. And she's like, and then the next day or the next hour someone would drop a fork on the ground and I would be like, what the hell? Who, who's making all that noise? Like I'd be filled with anger and rage and irritability. And I couldn't predict it either. You know, I couldn't find, I, I'm always looking for pattern recognition, I think in life. And I couldn't, I was so messy and I was so uninformed about all the different things that are going on. And so I would just withdraw. I would take myself out of a lot of situations. You know, there were a lot of family dinners that I just didn't go to because I just couldn't. Um, I have noise canceling headphones that I, you know, now wear because I really like them and everything, but I bought noise canceling headphones because I had to wear them around my house instead of wear them around all the time because I just couldn't handle noise.
0: Well, I have to say, I, I appreciate your, um, openness and your transparency and your honesty about this entire experience. Because as we've been talking about, I think that the assumption is, well, he'll take a week off. He'll be back. He'll be fine. Yeah. He'll sleep it off. And it really, there are some, as you've been describing, Um, severe handicaps that we would you would just never drop an ounce of energy on or, uh, uh, you know, any thought towards that now the noise canceling headphones and, you know, thankfully, you had enough of that prefrontal cortex or that executive function area that Sam and uh, Matt Walker were talking about to help maybe uh, potentiate or attenuate some of the um, some of the responses that maybe you felt in the moment that you really wanted to uh, maybe act on. And, Um, I think it's important for people to hear how ugly, really, uh, it it can be. And, you know, maybe we can use some of the time that we have now to talk about some of the things that were imperative for you in the trajectory of your healing. Now, certainly, I also want to make sure that we say that healing is really nonlinear, as you very well know. Yeah. Um, But maybe um, I would be curious for you to start maybe describing Um, where did you start feeling like things were starting to favor recovery where things were starting to move in the direction that you would like them to move and maybe not at the pace you were hoping for, but where there were, you were starting to see evidence where there was light at the end of the tunnel or there was some glimmer somewhere off in the distance.
1: Sure. Um, so I would say the recovery came when I think about this on a macro level, I think there was almost like two stages to it i describe i use this framework now for almost anything in life and feel free to to try it because i think it works in a lot of different areas i just i describe the concussion journey as i a period where you have to identify and then you have to manage and then you have to optimize so if you think about that identify is just figuring out what the heck is going on so that's most of us in life spend a lot of our time in identify not knowing what's happening like we actually don't most of us don't even get out of identify right so you know go back to the examples we talked about before just in terms of like life situations that occur right like you know why did your marriage unravel or why are you unhealthy or why do you not get along with this person or why are you unhappy in your job or whatever all these different things it's like there's a bunch of different things going on and most people are just reacting to the thing that's happening to the things that are happening and they actually haven't taken their time taking the time this goes back to the you know the outset of our chat you know sort of the value of sort of cross-examining life and just sort of thinking your way through life you have to actually pause and look around and actually take stock of what's happening and ask yourself. So the metaphor I like to think about with this is sailing. Not that I'm a nautical wizard, but I sort of understand the general concepts of it. Most people don't even know you're in a sailboat. So you're just hit with winds and waves. But you don't even know that you're in a sailboat. And that's where most of us sit sort of in most areas of our life. You know? And and you you feel, don't,
0: how can you read the label of the jar that you're in, right?
1: Yeah, that sort of thing. That's right. So... So for me, for the first couple of years of my concussion, it was just like I was being hit by the winds and the waves. And I was sort of just like always just trying to, as I said, this this journey to unpleasant surprises and trying to figure a life and trying to do this. But like, I don't even know what's going on. I just know it like I'm failing at so many things and I'm having such a hard time and I'm this different person and you have some good days and you have some bad days and all this kind of stuff. So it took me a while to just actually spend time identifying. And so what I started to do from the identification piece was and i literally sat down and started writing this out i'd start to write out what are things that really seem to hurt me like what are things that really seem to bother me what are th- things that seem to not bother me like they seem neutral and then what were things that sort of help? so very simple but just start to spend some time and so of course the things that bothered me were um you know driving noise you know stress you know uncertainty you know all the you know i started going through all these different things um light like, you know, something flashing, um, trying to hold a conversation with one person that, you know, like two people at the same time, being at a dinner party, um, all these different. I started just making a massive list of all the different things. And then um, I had a list of things that I thought were kind of neutral. And then I started working on a list of things that seemed to really help me, Um, you know, things that seemed to make me feel a little better. And so I started to realize like quiet time really seemed to help me. Like I really seem to do well and I actually would like sit and just take some time to just be still. And be still, we could, you know, talk for two hours on that in and of itself. It's, you know, this is almost, you know, we're going back a lot of years now. I think it's a much more ubiquitous term now, but, you know, still not enough. Um, You know, be still is just something that I think a lot of us just don't do. Like the world doesn't, again, we could talk about this for a while and I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on it. Uh, I think it's worthy of it, but just not at this time. Uh, the world is no longer set up that way. The world has given us a reason to not be still 24 hours of the day. And I talk to people all day long, you know, in sort of my business now, I'm interacting with humans all the time and always getting to know people. And it's really interesting to try to get feedback from people on this in terms of how much quiet time they actually have. So, And and I would have fallen into that camp pre-concussion. Because I would, you know, get up in the morning and I'd go work out and then I'd be, you know, seeing my kids and then running out the door and then I get to work and I'm talking to someone that I'm in court. Like I always either had music playing or I was talking to someone or I was moving this. Like I never actually just carved out times of, I don't think stillness, even as a deep thinker, there was almost always still something probably running in the background. And so I found post concussion that if I was actually just still and I would literally, I mean, I literally would just learn to, I learned to sit in a chair and stare at a tree. And it sounds like, are you kidding me? Like, what was wrong with it? It's like, no, that was actually um, arguably one of the most productive things that I could do. And mm-hmm. it really was, and without me really knowing it, that was sort of opening the door to obviously meditation and to mindfulness and to really letting my brain start to actually just let the dust simmer a little bit, just give it time to sort of calm down. And then I could just start to thinking my way through things. And then through that, I ultimately learned how to actually start um, thinking thinking about something in a in a, in an in-depth way where I could just get vertical on I could just get deeper and deeper on something. I would pick a I would pick a topic in my mind and start thinking about it. And it's almost how I started to like it sounds so cliche, but almost like re reconnect things, which I think I'm sure I was doing neurologically, but it's almost how I figured how to make sense of the world again. And um I think for some people that might just sound like a painfully laborious process, but two things. Number one, um It's actually wonderful um, when you can actually embrace it. And number two, um, who gives a shit? Because when you're desperate, you will do anything to get better. You know? So at that point in time, it's like, if this is my way out, if this is the way, I'm taking the way here. Like, this is how I do this. And so I think I just naturally started to recognize this was something that seemed to be really helpful.
0: There's like a surrendering. There's a surrendering there that I think is really beautiful and just want to sort of double click on and highlight as well. Because I think when you... um when you're forced to really look at yourself and say, okay, what are my skills and my abilities right now? And if it's, if it's me sitting and sitting outside legs crossed or whatever, looking at the tree yeah, and I'm going to run through my day, I think there's a, you know, that's, that's when, I mean, that's when the rise starts really is when you yes. can surrender to where you are exactly. There's that disillusion of the ego where it's like, ah, oh, but I used to be able to, that's right. Ba, 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 ba. There's, there's something really beautiful about that, about that surrender. And even just the monotony of, Okay. Let me just go through the entire day. Where is the keys? Where is the shoes? Where is the parking spot? Where's the meeting? Where's all yes. those, all those different things? I think that's when you can really start to turn the tides.
1: Yeah. That's right. And I appreciate you raising the issue on surrender. Cause I think you're right. Because I think as I, as I listen to you and as I think about it a bit more, you're, you're completely right. Because I would have spent a lot of energy, you know, previously lamenting all the things I wasn't right so, rather than sort of being like, Oh, now I have to like, you know, have this system in my life but where I put keys and glasses and where because I'm forgetting everything or I can't you know or now I have to like write down names because I forget names and now I have to really think my way through consonants because I have consonant confusion or now I you know I used to be able to do a b and c that's right it's not very fun to sort of live in that used to category unless you can use that as a way to sort of inspire you towards you know but if you do it in a lamenting way it can be very dangerous you're right so I so I I did I did just start to really just do that as a daily, daily practice. Another thing that I noticed that was really helpful for me was time in nature. It was almost like every single time I was in nature, every time I was just outside, even just sitting in my backyard, walking through the forest. Um, I, I, that's when I really got into mountain biking, actually, which sounds very paradoxical for someone recovering from a concussion, but I'll, I'll come back to it in a second. It was actually, it was actually super helpful the way in which I mountain biked um and one of the observations that i came to as i really spent some time thinking about it was simply this it's really simple but it was like really helpful and it continues to help me to this day and i think it's probably helpful for anyone um the tasks or the things the events that seemed to trouble me the most were ones that would have been foreign to a human from a thousand years ago and the task or the events or the settings that seemed to help me the most were ones that a human from a thousand years ago would recognize and the framework that I thought of with this was, um, you know, Michael Pollan has that book. I think it's in defense of food, in defense of real food or something. And I remember just, I don't, you know, I, I read that book a long time ago. I just remember sort of this idea of real food versus non-real food. And I think it was his framework that was sort of like real food is food that someone from a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago would recognize. You know, non-real food is something that, you know, they would. not And I remember just thinking about that in terms of life. And I remember mapping this out in my journal. I started journaling and I remember mapping this as like, oh, real life versus I, I, artificial life maybe the wrong term but maybe modern life you know and so real life to me was life that was in line with again uh, you know something that a human would recognize which in my mind made sense because i was like if human hasn't been around this long it's only been in the last little smidgen that we've had access to the things that we interact with 90 percent of the day. so artificial light obviously we're sitting in for an artificial light today tech but driving was one that really made me think about it i was like oh that is so weird no wonder driving is so hard for me we're like, it's only been in the last, you know, 60 years that you could really drive something at 120 kilometers an hour while looking at and assessing 50 other things coming at you at 120 kilometers an hour. I was like, holy shit. No wonder that that's actually a really taxing thing. Like, no wonder that made me like every time I had to drive, I felt like I had to like sleep afterwards. Like I was so exhausted afterwards. That's a really tough neurological event. Um, and then I found, you know, sitting at a computer and typing was really hard. Looking at a phone was really hard. Um, noises were really hard. Um, lights were really all these things. And I was like, wow. So I just realized the more time I spent in nature, um, the better I felt and the more time I spent doing activities. So this was really fascinating because I've talked about the social anxiety. You know what seemed to almost increase once I started to figure this out it was my ability to have a one-on-one conversation. So it's like sitting down with somebody for like two hours outside um just having a conversation suddenly became like a value add to my life and no longer a drain and i thought that was really fascinating too because i was like oh did i not give myself the time to do that before or is it just that and I, and I i always brought it back to that's what humans used to do a lot more there's an activity that we probably did you know sitting by a fire and talking as simple as it sounds and so i started to just make a list of things that worked really well for me and things that didn't work well for me. And so part two of sort of my journey was, I said, there's identify, identify, manage, optimize. So part two, I think, was manage. And manage to me was, to use my sailing example now, was manage was preventing these wind and these waves from harming you. Like now you're aware of them. Or another metaphor, and sort of switch up metaphors here, but I know, I know you're smart enough to get it, and I know your audience is too. The other way I sort of thought about it, the other metaphor that I used was all these things that hurt, I viewed like spears, like someone threw a spear at me, you know, like driving was a spear, noise was a spear, um, someone blocking my view was a spear, someone making me look at their iPhone, sitting in a waiting room where I, there was a screen rolling and noise in the background, a baby crying was a spear, all these different things just made me like huge levels of fatigue, you know, um, obviously anxiety, things that caused anxiety were a spear. And so... I just started to realize part two was I'm just going to get rid of these things in my life. So I started setting up my life where I didn't have to drive as much. And then I started setting up my life where I could try to have as much quiet as possible. And I started just trying to avoid these things. Which, by the way, wasn't a bad strategy. But let me tell you why it was an incomplete one. It was, in com- it was incomplete, and it but it took me, you know, this is almost stage two, which was a couple of years, right? And like, this is a long multi-year journey here. Um, The reason it's incomplete is the net result of that is still a limited life. It's still a life where now you're taking activities out of your life, right? So the difference between sort of stage one where I have a series of unpleasant surprises every day I'm finding out something new I can't do, right? And that's sort of that narrowing of the funnel, right? Like I'm 36 and suddenly I can't do things like I'm 86. Um, stage two was I'm aware of them and then I deliberately, so I got rid of the unpleasant surprise part, which was nice. Like that was good. I was no longer like, oh, this is awful. I just found out. I was like, this is awful. I just won't do it. But the net result was I was still limiting myself. So then sort of comes to stage three, which again, in my framework, identify, manage, optimize stage three was, um, optimize, which is take the dynamics that you've observed and ask yourself this simple question. How can I, how can I use this to my advantage? To me, that's what optimizes. Like I had said before, you know, sort of bringing this all full circle.
0: There's some optimism in there as well. That's
1: right. I had said, um, you know, something I learned from my dad was idle at optimism. Like no matter what. I mean, this is the guy who sat in Princess Margaret, you know, you know, sort of the cancer hospital in Toronto for those not from Mm -hmm. Toronto. Um, this is the guy who sat there and said, um, I don't have cancer. Right. This is the guy who um, came to Canada and said, you know, how can I get a let snow and ice and, and ship it back to Egypt as opposed to saying, what the hell have I done? Why did I leave the Mediterranean? Um, so, you know, to me, optimize in a lot of ways is like, look at your available options and decide how to make the universe sort of work for you. Um, and so, again, I'll switch metaphors here a little bit, but I know everyone can get it. You know, in the sailing one, this is now where you actually say, oh, there's wind and there's waves and I'm going to boat. How do I make those wind and those 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 winds and those waves work for me? Uh, if I can adjust my sails just a little bit, if I can lean this way, lean that way, if I can actually gain a sense as to you know sailing's a beautiful, right? Like sort of where I am, where I want to go, what the wind and the waves, which I can't control, are doing now. How do I adjust my sails so that this gets me from where I am to where I want to go? So for me on my concussion recovery, you know, I had a couple of frameworks that I had to really think my way through, but. On this idea of optimize you know and sort of like make me make this thing make me better this was to answer your question sort of the turning point for me is i literally just spent a lot of time thinking about this and i just made um two really important i think decisions um the first was i need to i need to make sure that my goal is to get to a spot one day in my life where i'm grateful for this I just decided early I have to get it. And, and there's a big difference between you can sort of lament something and hate it forever then I'd say there's next you know the next stage of sort of like the next stage in that progression would be you learn to say well it was really shitty but I found the silver line that's like good That's that's not bad the third stage is I'm super glad this happened even if I had DeLorean and I could go back in time I wouldn't change this that took me like if I'm you know coming up on a decade that was like almost like seven years I think like before I actually got to the spot but my goal was I decided a couple years into this I was like I have to get to the spot where I'm thankful for this and then if you do that you then are forced to say well how will I get there like that's the goal right that's the place it's like how will I get there it's like oh there's only one way I'm ever going to get there and that is if this thing makes me better and if this thing makes me better as a human being then I can look back upon it and say I'm thankful this happened I'm grateful really grateful this occurred to me. So for me, I was just like, how how will I, you know, I have to be grateful for it. That's the decision I'm making. I then have to get to a spot to do that where I'm thankful for it. I can only be thankful for it if it's made me better. Uh-huh. I've got to find a way to make this concussion make me a better human. That was sort of in a lot of ways the turning point of ah, uh, I've got to find a way to get this thing to make me better.
0: And I would, I would say if I could, if I could add on to it, if there's a if there's a, thir- a fourth uh, piece to that, it's like now how can I help others yes. on the path behind me and shorten their learning curve and teach? Yeah, it's almost like you know if you have you have boys, so maybe uh, you've watched the. Um, the cars, the Disney cars, uh, uh trilogy where, you know, the third it, movie, right, you know, the first right. and the second movie is all about McQueen. And then the fourth, the third movie is like him, you know, kind of giving back and now being right. the coach. And, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of yeah, yeah, <laughs> not I to like bring it. up cars, but my kids were obsessed with cars bringing, and growing up. So we watched those movies many times yeah. and, uh, it's, it's kind of like that, you know, you identify, you manage, you optimize, as you're saying. Yeah. And now how can you give back? How can you, you know, help those who are on the path that are, you know, you're on the same path with them, but they're just a little bit further behind. How can you help them? How can you, um, how can you continue the learning so that there was a point to the story? There was a point to, yes. you know, you being grateful for, it, but there's also a point in that somebody else may be hearing your story, whether it's on this podcast or however you decide to continue to share your message, that it, it gives someone hope. It gives someone a framework where, you know, you were not given a framework largely. You sort of were like, what's this unpleasant surprise that I'm going to discover today? Um, It gives somebody a framework for, all right, it's not a six-week thing. It's not a week off or a weekend off, and I'll just be back at it on Monday. Um, This is serious, as we were saying prior to recording. It's not nothing, right? It's not nothing, yeah. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, it's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com/better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten s u n l i g h t e n.com/b e t t e r and use code better at checkout.
1: So when I, when I went through this progression of I've got to get to a spot where I'm grateful for this in order to do that, I, you know, in order to be thankful, I have to get to a spot where I'm actually happy this happened to me. And the only way I'll get there is if this makes me better. So picture a quarterback who naturally can throw the ball 80 yards down the field. They're just such a gifted athlete that they can throw the ball 80 yards down the field. And that's how they play most of their life. And they have a great career relying on their athletic skill. And then they get injured and they have, you know, whether it be a shoulder injury or an elbow injury. They suddenly now, on account of this instant, you know, acute injury, lose the ability to throw the ball 80 yards. They can now throw the ball 40 yards. So they're no longer qualified to play quarterback at that level. They're relegated to sort of everybody else, you know, or lower. What that quarterback can do and what we've seen, obviously athletes do is they then say, I relied just on natural strength to throw the ball 80 yards, but now I actually have to work on my technique. I now actually have to figure out how do I actually get the ball to go as far as possible and as accurately as possible on technique. So then they spend years and years and years working on that technique. So now they learn, you know, you know, use my hips, tuck my elbow, twist my shoulder, whatever the case is, they spend a long time working on techniques to get their now weakened arm, which can only throw 40 and to get it back to that spot where they can once again throw 80. Imagine imagined for a moment, and this is what, how I thought about it, I thought of myself as, you know, cerebrally or intellectually, I'm operating at life where I can throw the ball 80 yards. I don't mean I'm a, I'm a wizard or a genius, I just mean I was operating at a high level. Post-concussion, I suddenly was a guy who could throw the ball like 20 yards maybe, you know, whatever, 20 yards, 40 yards, something exponentially less. I then told myself, once I sort of realized this, I am now learning techniques as to how to think better. I'm now learning to start my day with quiet time. I'm now learning how much better my brain does when it's in nature. I'm now learning how much better my brain does when I avoid some of these distractions. Wow, I'm now challenging how I think. I'm now working on how to navigate life better. The concussion gave me an opportunity to learn how to do life better and think my way through life better. And I have to put these new systems into place just to be able to get into my car in the morning and earn a paycheck. And then, you know, make it through the day and not be a terrible father. Huh. If I can get to the spot where I learn these techniques and, and I can think better, and I regain my strength, well, shit, I won't just get back to 80. I can get to 120. And that's how I thought about it. You know, so back to the quarterback, it's like technique, technique. And then suddenly now on technique, you've gone from 40 back up to 80, but then you get your strength back and now you have that technique plus your strength. Well, now you're better than you were before and now you're the 120. So that is how I choose to, to think about it. And that's how I choose to live.
0: What do you think surprised you or delighted you maybe uh, the most about this experience and coming back from it?
1: Yeah, I would say what I just described. Because now, by the way, just on that front, just to sort of close that loop. Now I still get up every single morning and I spend an hour or so, sometimes not always an hour, but I still spend an hour sitting in a chair staring at a tree. Like it's right here in my office. I, you know, whether it be in this house or the house I lived before, like if I'm at a hotel, I'm on the road or for work or whatever it is, I still my morning routine is almost, you know, a hundred percent of the time to get up and have quiet time. And um it's so interesting because I, I say this to people all the time I work with, um, the most productive hour of my day is the hour of my day in which it looks like I'm doing the least, which is me just getting up, sipping a coffee, staring around a tree. And it's like, that's actually where, that's where I have my deepest thoughts. That's where I actually make sense of the world. That's actually where I solve really like my, my, my business now, which we can talk about, of course, some other time, but my business now is ultimately to solve really complex problems for other families and other businesses. You know, so I get hired by, you know, family businesses and ultra wealthy families, and I get hired by them to ultimately, I think in a lot of ways, you know, optimize complexity is how I'd sort of describe it. And, um, um, a lot of those families, I think, think they're hiring me for the time that I'm in the room with them, which, which they are. But I, but they, I think those who have been with me now for a few years understand that really it's my time away from the room. And I'm sp- spending a lot of time thinking about solving a seven dimensional problem and then try to come back uh, to that. And I, I do that very often either while I'm exercising or while I'm in stillness. That's my time to just sit and think. And that's where I sort of, you know, cross-examined myself on who I want to be as a human. And that's where if I'm going to sort of spend time being like, can I be a better husband or can I be a better father? It's during that time that I'm just really thinking my way through these complex problems in myself and in the world and in others. And so I still do that. And I would say that one, you know, I I have that bucket of time I create every day. And five, six years ago, post-concussion, I needed that time to literally just figure out where the hell I'd park my car and how I'd not forget my keys but I saw the value of that deep thought about mountain biking you know I I that was my entry back into sports was I literally just went to a local forest here just north of Toronto with a bike I couldn't go back on the road I was afraid to go back on the road and the sounds of cars whizzing by me gave me like super high anxiety um, so I was just like, I'm, I'm too fearful to get back on the road. And, uh, but I thought, you know, in the woods, the worst that can happen is I can kind of fall. So I found this nice, you know, simple, benign set of trails and I would just go out, no gadgets, no gear. I'd look at my watch and I'd say, I'm just going to bike for 45 minutes max at the slowest, you know, pace known to mankind. And what I love about mountain biking and why it was so helpful was when you mountain bike, you can't actually think about anything else. All you can think about is the roots and the rocks that are in front of you. And so I would just go out daily and just be like, what can I do? What can I do? Can I just go out? Can I get over this route? You know, this route? Can I get over this? Can I get over that? And that's how I got into mountain biking. And now it's like, I'm addicted to mountain biking. And it is 100% my meditative time, just alone in the woods, navigating the forest with my mind completely in the zone of, uh, you're sort of one with your body, one with the woods as you try to figure this out. And so to answer your question, you know, what are the pleasant surprises? It's like, man, I just had no idea how much more there was out there when you actually want to approach life really with an attitude of stillness and absorption and, you know, savoring and all these things. And I, I operate now at a really high pace again in life, but I never do it without this other side of it. And that has been such a wonderful and beautiful and pleasant surprise to answer your question. And then I'd say part two, um, is the impact that other people have had upon me in a positive way. Like, you know, anyone who's gone through a difficult time, like, you know, uh, my friend Doug that I mentioned, you know, um, I could spend six hours talking about what a mensch this guy is and what a tremendous human he is. But I said to him all the time, you know, he's showing me through and through what a true friend is, you know, so supportive, so encouraging, and yet honest with me. Tell me when I'm a moron, tell me when I'm full of shit, tell me I need to step up my A game.
0: But God, we all need people like that. People that are really willing to show you like to love you and support and to support you but also willing to lift the mirror up and say you got to look here. You got yeah. you, you really have to, you know, evaluate what what this is. Yeah. Yeah, we need people we need people to remind us who we are because we often sometimes we forget in the depths that's, of our despair, we sometimes right. we forget. Yeah. 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 Tell me a little bit about how Your training changed. I want to maybe get into some of the specifics around if you used uh, any modalities with fitness, with uh, supplementation, with nutrition. Um, How did you? You know, one of the we've had um, Phil Maffetone on the on the show, who's like maximum, you know, maximal aerobic fitness guy. He's the guy who came up with the one eighty minus your age uh, formula, Um, and one of his premises for. We'll say increasing uh, aerobic capacity is maintaining the the same heart rate but increasing your intensity, increasing your strength and increasing your output. So in this case, let's say you were talking about if my heart rate went over ninety five, I would start to get lightheaded. But was yeah. there a moment where you're like, "All right, I can keep ninety five, but like my watts are or my you know I'm able to right. do I'm able to do more on the bike." Let's say, um, can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, principle or some of the uh, movement modalities that were very helpful for
1: you? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, there was there was a few. So I would say early days, um, when I got to that spot, or when I realized I was at that spot where if my heart rate got above 95, I'd get lightheaded. That was obviously super discouraging and very discouraging for a guy who um, was literally working out like he was still going to go play pro football kind of thing. Like I just, I just had such an intensity about my exercise at that time. I was actually more intense exercising, by the way, as a 35-year-old than I was as a 25-year-old. So here is what was really interesting. I actually am really, really glad that I sort of figured this out. And um, I figured out, I think, I think the MO was simply this. Um, do what you can do. No matter how much, quote unquote, less that thing is, less intense, lower on the hierarchy of exercise, whatever it was. So all I could do at that point in time was walk. Like all I could do was walk. Because everything else, like I couldn't, I couldn't bike, I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't push-ups hurt. Every everything sort of seemed to hurt my head, and I'd get lightheaded or nauseous. And so, if the only thing I seemed to be able to do was walk, so then I just started walking. I just made that my new thing. So I bought a little um, rest heart rate monitor so I could keep a track of my heart rate. It actually got to the spot. We, I said we would come back to this. I think it's at at some point earlier, but I actually got to the spot where we talked about sort of like how do you manage that notion of like um, comparing yourself to where you were. And I said, well, well, you said, we'll put a pin in this or whatever. We'll come back to it. So this is it. In order to succeed in life, particularly, I think, when you're going through a difficult time, you have to focus on progress. Because progress leads to progress. And I just think, I don't, you know, I'm not a neurologist. Um, I have a degree in psychology, but, you know, certainly are not qualified to sort of explain this away. But I've certainly observed it. You know, I think momentum, I mean, momentum, the word itself, right, sort of describes the thing. It's like emotions snowball, progress snowballs, um, and lack of progress and lack of momentum also snowball. So I think it's very important when you manage yourself, and this is why this is true of life and in concussions, when you manage yourself, you actually have to know how to manage your own momentum. You have to know when to kick yourself in a direction that challenges you and you can handle it, and then you have to know how to actually build momentum. I don't know if you think about that even with your work day. Like, I think about that every single day. I think a lot about flow. I think a lot about what sort of state or momentum do I want as I roll into this. So for today's podcast, by the way, just as an example, we record this on a Friday afternoon. I didn't just plug this into my schedule where I fit. I knew a Friday afternoon was like I'd have positive momentum going into a long weekend. I The call I booked earlier today for work by design was a really fun, upbeat call on a business development thing with a guy that wants to work with me and that I want to work with. Like, I just knew it'd be like a fun exchange. I made sure this morning when we have cattle on our farm now, I had an awesome morning quiet time. I talked to a good friend. I had an awesome, fun workout. I did that on purpose because I was like, if I roll into my chat this afternoon with Stephanie and I'm just sort of in a downward spiral... Or not even a downwards spiral emotionally, but it's sort of like a day where I've just gotten kicked in the head repeatedly, you know, metaphorically. Like I may not bring the same energy to talk about a conversation that I think wants, that I think mandates an elevated version of me. Not even, uh, there's nothing fake about how I am right now. I just mean, I'm, I'm thinking clearly and I'm and I'm in the zone talking about something that's very important. That makes sense. So when Absolutely. it came to exercise post concussion, I thought a lot about, um, momentum. And so I started walking. And it's all I could do. And then I just started setting goals. I would just be like, Oh, today I walked a kilometer and that was all the energy I had, but that's awesome. And then the next day I'd be like, Can I walk, you know, 1.1 kilometers? And so, and I started walking and that was actually one of the few things that I could do with noise. I actually put headphones on for that and I started listening to like really inspiring music or talks. But I think if I, in hindsight, it was just walking. It didn't require much else other than sort of the listening to the things was very meditative. And I make this joke all the time, but like, I was getting passed by like the 60 year old ladies with their fanny packs on their lunchtime walk. And I did not give two shits. I, I, cause in that moment I was so excited that I was progressing in something. It felt like the only area in my life that I was progressing. So yes, I had regressed immensely from who I was, you know, two weeks earlier, six weeks earlier, whatever. But I finally found something that I could actually measure progression, which I really needed for my own psyche. So walking was the first thing that I did. Um, And I just that was like the hour of the day or whatever it was of the day that I just looked forward to most. That was the thing. And to be honest, I'd have to come home and take a nap, which is madness when you I actually think about, you know, what I was doing before. And even obviously now what I could what I can once again do now. Like, you know, I've done six hour bike rides, seven hour bike rides, I've worked out for 10 hours before. Like I can do a lot of stuff and usually have some pretty good energy. Um so that was that was one thing. And I, I would say the I would say the takeaway there, the principle is whatever it is you can do, do. And I love a line from one of my favorite bike store owners. <clears throat> I remember going to this bike store owner that I really liked. Um and I said, Hey, should I buy this bike or should I and he goes, listen to me very carefully. I was like, It was he was such a such a classic guy. He said, Hey, you buy the bike, you'll ride the most. That's the right bike for you. I was like, Oh. He's like, Don't worry about what someone bike, you know, it's like, ride the bike, you'll ride the bike, buy the bike, you'll ride the most. That's so the, I think di- the
0: that's the di- the best diet is the one yes. that you'll stick to, right? The that's best right. exercise program is the one you'll be able to do consistently over a longer delta.
1: That's yeah. right. So that was the activity that I could do. So that's what I did. The other thing I think I did exercise wise, just psychologically, that's probably, you know, I don't know if this is, I think you'll really, you know, sort of resonate with this um, is I was not afraid to mourn the loss. And I don't know if that was the right choice or the wrong choice. I mean, I look back upon, I think I'm positive. So here's what I mean by that. Um, there was a day when, remember I said we had sort of two months in Ottawa, then we were leaving. Yeah. Prior to my injury, I had set a day on the calendar of this big mountain bike ride or this, this big ride that I wanted to do at this sort of famous sort of spot in Ottawa. And I had never done it before. And I was like, like, so before I got injured, I was like, I'm going to do this before I leave the city. Um, and, uh, of course, post injury, I, I couldn't do it, you know, like I couldn't, you know, I couldn't ride for five minutes. So, uh, on that day, I still went out to that trailhead. Um, I still went out to that trailhead. So instead of biking, I wanted to do a hundred kilometer bike ride on a mountain bike, which would take about like seven or eight hours. Like it was going to be, and it'll be the first time I would have ever done that. So instead I drove out to like the last section of that. Um, which was like this big climb that I was really excited to sort of do on the mountain bike. That was this goal that I'd set. And I said, I drove out to it and I parked at the bottom. Uh, and I was like, I'm going to just go to try it. I'm going to walk it. Um, uh, mm. And I was like, I have to do this. So I got my hiking sticks, got my hiking poles, or whatever. And uh I couldn't do it. I barely got I don't I don't know how far I got into it, but like I uh and so I I I sat there in the woods and sat on a rock or sat in a tree stump and I just balled my eyes out, you know? Um because it was like this um, wild juxtaposition of what I was and what I was now. I was like wow I was suppo- on this day I was supposed to be doing this unbelievable epic ride um like a 7 8 hour ride through the hills through like something I'd never done before something that, you know I was just like and instead I literally can't even walk it but I didn't I didn't run from that like I actually I let myself sort of mourn that so I remember I, I sat there and I cried and I actually, remember I called a good friend of mine, another friend, um, who I'm extremely grateful for and who just was like super sympathetic and just empathetic rather. And just, just listened to me sort of mourn how upset I was. So I, I think part of it, um, at least for me, that was really helpful was I actually allowed myself to mourn the things. Cause I'm, you know, my wife and I have talked to a lot about this a lot now that we're raising kids. And you, if you read sort of child psychology literature, they'll be like, it's important, like, don't stop your kids from crying when they're sad about something. Let let them yes. feel that pain. Yes. Like I lost yes. like my, you know, my kids are in sports now. Like we lost the game. And like as a parent, you're like, all right, let's get in the car. It's like like, no, I love that. Like you're nine years old, you're ten years old, and you're crying over like the game you lost. Yeah. Now you don't want to spend there forever, but you have to feel that, I think, to progress through to the other side.
0: But you have to be there. Yeah, that's I love what you're saying here because you have to be able to metabolize those feelings in order to work through mm-hmm. them. And I think so often in society we um, we're quick to, um, and this is just maybe me drawing back into my what I know well, which is healthcare. We're so quick to prescribe a medication to numb the pain, or we you know to it. help you sleep, or you know whatever it is. Rather than looking at what is causing the pain, what is causing the movement strategy that's causing the pain? Let's say with your yeah. shoulder or your low back or whatever it is, or you're un- you're unable to sleep. Well, why, why are you unable to sleep? Is there some underlying condition that we maybe we're not considering? And I feel like the your ability to sit on that mountain, let's say uh, that you were supposed to bike, but you know now could no longer walk, is an appropriate response it's an appropriate response to the stimulus. Again, coming back to like what it's okay to cry. It's okay to grieve. Like that's how we, you know, that's how we, we move through. You know, The, the idea should be to move through something rather than sort of sidestep it and move
1: around it yeah, or stop sort of right push there. It down. Yeah. Or that's right. right or even stop yeah. right there. So part of that is you'd asked about exercise. I actually allowed myself to mourn the loss. And I'm really glad I did. You know, for me, that really worked out. I allowed myself to sit there and mourn it because I know for me personally, when I feel things strongly, I'm, you know, yes, it's discouraging. Yes, it hurts, but then I, I like to sort of savor that and marinate in that a little bit and then ask myself, like cross examine myself. What are you going to do about this? How will you navigate this? You know, and I think also you develop empathy, right? Like you develop deep empathy for people who are struggling with something, you know? So I think I, I gained a lot of empathy out of my concussion experience. So back to the question about the sport so walking was huge uh i would as again again as i'd say i would celebrate i'd sort of not celebrate i'd sort of like allow myself to have those bad moments i'd mentioned already the mountain biking was really helpful so once that took a while that was probably certainly months and months after but i'd say even longer than that and again it was just like what can i do and what feels good So I think that was sort of the MO, which was like, I never, I've always had this mentality and I certainly doubled down on it when I had, you know, sort of four kids in four years, my rule became like, I will never miss a workout. Like I will do something. And I don't care if what I'm doing is 10 minutes worth of pull-ups and push-ups or, you know, bodyweight squats or whatever. And like, I always found a way as a guy who had a busy day job and four young kids to make sure I got my workout. And so I applied that post-concussion as well, which was whatever thing I can do, that's what I'll do. And for the longest time, it was just walking, which is hilarious when you know me and know how other how intense I'd otherwise trained. And I measured that progress. Then I got to a spot where I'd learned to sort of celebrate the things I could do and to sort of just be okay with it. Um, so I remember getting on my first road ride and doing like a family event with people. And it was sort of like this family event where like the young guys would sort of race together and the old guys would race. And I hadn't been riding a road bike, but I decided to go with the older guys. Well, it was a fun thing because when I went with the older guys, I was like still stronger than them. Like even, you know what I mean? And so we actually had a blast. And so in a weird way I think the takeaway there is I found a way to make my new form of exercise socially rewarding as well. And then I would say the most fun part of it, um, two things really, which I'll tie into this. One was once I started to work with a guy like Sam Gibbs and started to understand this connection between your eyesight and your brain and healing, um, I got really excited about doing things that worked on my hand eye. I got really excited about doing things that I just call like these neurologically challenging exercises. So, um, things like standing on one leg and bouncing a ball against the wall or things like getting my, um, you know, my non-dominant hand and bouncing a ball against the wall. And so then I just started incorporating that into my day as much as possible. Uh, and I still, that is still to this day now, a huge part of my workouts. So like one of my weightlifting circuits, you know, we, you and I've talked about these a little bit, I will put hundreds of pounds on a push sled and I will push that. I will pull it. I will jump rope. I will do all this kind of stuff. That's very intense. And then in the midst of that, I'll stand on a balance board and um, hold a squash racket and try to like get as many as I can with my non-dominant hand. Uh, I do so a lot of my workouts have me doing things that now really fatigue me, um, physically, cardiovascular, uh, from a cardiovascular standpoint and a muscular standpoint. And then I try to juxtapose it with a significant neurological challenge. Yeah, I just great. love that, and that's something that I sort of pulled out of my post-concussion you know days of really trying to challenge my mind to think and to act in new ways so i did a lot of non-dominant stuff a lot of balance stuff a lot of hand-eye stuff and then i just got to the spot where that was taxing post-concussion and then i got to the spot where i was like holy crap i really like this and i find significant value in this and i've just never let it go so now that's just part of my training and now what i try to do is almost artificially create fatigue or manually voluntarily create fatigue because i don't have that brain fatigue that i did because my brain's healed from the concussion so now what i do is i'll just take myself to complete exhaustion on the weights, and then I have to go do this neurological test uh, as a way to almost challenge my mind. So I'm like voluntarily doing to myself in a weird way what I couldn't otherwise do, but was trying to like navigate my way through.
0: Man, that's so cool. I love that. There's that's, you know, a lot of my um specialty in practice was and part, maybe part of the reason why me and Sam got along so yes. well is my interest in functional neurology and how we can you know, challenge the vestibular system. How we can challenge all—all all of these things that you're that you're describing. I would usually even just have patients start brushing their teeth with their raw, you know, with their with their non-dominant hand, let's say, as as a way. Or we had these um, pencil push-ups that I would okay do, where convergence and divergent. Anyway, it's a conversation for another yes. time. But you're, what you're talking about is is really really awesome because now you're you're integrating body work, which of course we know has a positive impact on the brain, there's, you know, growth factors and VEGF and BDNF and all the things, um, there's myokines that we know that are released from, um, you know, particularly when the, when a muscle's contracting. So that can be on a bike, it can be in the, in the weight room, um, that's going to bring down inflammation and total inflammation and inflamaging really, which is sort of a, uh, portmanteau with aging and inflammation together. Um, so that's really exciting Um, so we have the physical aspect of it, but then there's the neurological challenge as well. So, uh, you know, our eyes and, you know, I'm sure you've, um, spoken to Sam and others about this, but the eyes are just really an extension of the brain. So we can really assess parasympathetic and sympathetic function. Um, even through just an exam that I'm sure Sam has taken you through many times. Like, is there a head tilt? How, you know, what's the, what's the torque look like? All of these different, like reducing torque and reducing. We'll say tensegrity in the spine or, you know, in, in the fascia lines, all of those different things um, are really, really exciting for um, improving afference up to the brain anyway. Like the information that comes up to the brain, at least through the joints and um, and the fascia. So I digress. No, no, um, no. I love we, it. It's, well, it's, you're, yeah. you're
1: totally right. I mean, once you start getting exposed to this stuff, I mean, I, would have, I wouldn't have thought. I mean, here's again another, you know, another set of roses born from the ashes, right? It's another good thing, another great thing. Yeah. I mean, I said, they my, would have
0: otherwise not have been available to that you, but I wouldn't
1: have otherwise. I just didn't think about this stuff. I might mean, have done what my coach told me or I would have trained, but I always just had this focus on sort of intensity and then learning the neurological aspect of things. And I, and you know, the mountain biking has been huge. Uh, I mean, I, obviously more and more is coming out now in terms of research and fitness and obviously longevity and, uh, in terms of doing activities that sort of take you into un- not even un- uncomfortable spaces for sure as part of it, but even reactionary things, like things that are non-rote to you right? Like the difference between hitting a racquetball versus just sort of like doing a repetitive motion in the gym and what that does sort of for your brain. And, you know, I I mountain bike several times each week um, that I look at that activity all the time. And as I said, it's it's very meditative. Um, you have to be paying attention to your body, the roots, the rocks, the trees, all that kind of stuff. I do that. Um, I, and I'm going to, you know, lift weights and I'm going to do all those things. And I'm going to challenge myself in all these different ways, balance, hand-eye, I love it. It's really, really fun. And that was another thing that I sort of learned out of another thing that sort of came out of the concussion and was helpful. So I I think the big things that were really helpful were this combination of doing what I could do, creating and making sure that I was mindful of progress. And then the other thing that I found, too, um, I'm trying to think if I was surprised by this. No, I don't. I think I would have thought this you know, before the concussion, but I think it just became much clearer to me. Um, exercise became much more of a meditative time for me post concussion by necessity, and and it continues to be for me today. I mean, that is a huge part of just my, you know, what I would say is just my requirements for the day. Remember how I said like in stage two when all these things seemed to bother me, I I felt they were spears, you know, and I was sort of have to like and I would get hit by them and then I would like set up this life where like I'll just avoid, I'll avoid driving, I'll avoid tech, I'll avoid social situations. And Then I was like, oh, that worked for a little while. The way out of that was um and i know i've described it in terms of then you optimize and you figure what works and what you know makes you better what i realized like the you know to continue that i i realized when i did certain things i viewed those as me putting on my armor because what i came to realize was that you actually can't live a life where you avoid spears forever like if you can't you can't leave your house and avoid spears like if you're a highly anxious person as i had become post-concussion Again, even just uttering those words today just sounds so foreign to me because I never would have described myself as an anxious person, you know, pre-concussion. In fact, I was with quite the opposite. So when I became somebody who just had this like crippling anxiety around all these different situations, and I got to the spot where I went through confusion and what the hell's happening, then I went through, I identified what happened, and now I have to manage it, so I'll avoid it. I then came to this realization that like, wow, I'm only in my 30s here, my late 30s now, early 40s. I don't want to be avoiding these things the rest of my life. And so that's what led to this idea of like, I'm going to come out better, et cetera, as we've talked about. And the metaphor that I used for me when I thought about what I have to do every day was I was like, oh, every day I have to put on my armor. Because if you have your armor and the thicker your armor is, then when you do walk out the door, um, you can take the spears when they come. So for me, my daily armor today, still to this day, is that quiet stillness every morning. Um it's literally just, I, I wake up almost every day before everybody else in my family, and I just, that's my quiet, I just nearly, really need it. And my wife's amazing because she, I think, just understands. I mean, I, I get up, I try to get up earlier than everybody, so no one's really that impacted by it, um, but it's just very important for me to just have quiet time in my own head to make sense of the universe, and that's just my quiet time, which I need. And then I need some measure of exercise, and it's so funny because I don't exercise necessarily always just for fitness. A big part of it, the first box I want to check off when I exercise is my mental state you know, exercise for me is really just, it's almost about progression. It's almost about challenge. There's like just a mental component to my exercise first and foremost. And then once I'm, once the mental pieces is is addressed, then I'm like, all right, cool. What's the physical piece? What am I working on today? Okay, great. I want to get strong on sled poles. Okay, great. I want to focus on Like it, you know, like that to me is secondary. The mental piece is the first part. And the third piece, which we could, you know, is a longer conversation, but that's, that's the you know, for me, that's the connection with my wife and the connection with my kids and the connection with my family members. So I feel that if I've had alone time in my own head, uh physical some sort of physical challenge, some sort of exercise where I've sort of challenged myself. I've had that mental connection sort of to my body and manage my state. And then I'm at peace and seal this sense of like love and connection in a holistic sense with the people that matter to me most. You know, the that list is short, right? It's your wife, it's your children. If you are me, it's me, you know, my, my parents, you know, brother, sister, like that, my closest, closest friends, if I'm at peace with them. And for me, with my wife and my kids, I've got to, I want to try to connect with them every single morning. If I do that, then I feel like whatever comes in the front door, you know, or whatever comes at me vis-a-vis a spear, I'm ready to deal with that's kind of my armor. But again, I learned all these lessons really, really the hard way, um, through, through the concussion.
0: And I think, you know, focusing on the, you know, rather than focusing on the gap, focusing on the gain, right? Focusing on your progress there. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say? So someone, let's say you came, uh, you met someone who uh, is three months, let's say, six to eight weeks, actually, six to eight weeks, two to three months out of their own tragedy. Um, Maybe it's a concussion. Maybe it's death of, you know, someone significant in their life. It's a divorce. It's a disease, something like that. Um, What do you say to them?
1: I think the first thing I do What's is I just ask them. Yeah, no, I think I just, the first thing I do is I ask them how they're doing. And then I shut up and I listen. And, and, and I think you listen to the answer they give you and people will, I think we're naturally taught to not talk a lot. I mean, obviously I obviously missed that lesson, but, um, <laughs> that's okay. I found, I found a career that allowed for it. So it's fine. Um, no, I, I think, um, I mean, we could talk a lot about this but um listening is a real art form it's very, it's very hard you're excellent at it by the way you've done an amazing job sort of listening listening today and i've certainly listened to you listen to you and other podcasts listening to other people that you interview um most people are just actually chomping at the bit to say what they want to say and as you know most conversations are actually just um parallel soliloquies right you saying a like, what did you have for lunch? And then you tell me I had, you know, a burger and fries. And then instead of me asking a follow-up question, like, where did you get your burger and fries? Or is that a common lunch for you? Or, you know, like, you then jump in. And then I jump in and say, well, I had a sandwich and a salad. Like, And then we just start actually um, sharing. We just, again, we have par- parallel soliloquies as opposed to an interactive conversation. So back to your question, um, I think I just listen. Because I think a lot of times, I think to, there's there's maybe a couple values in that. But one is it gives people a chance to speak and to feel heard and to feel acknowledged. And I think that's just really important. And I also think it's really lacking in the world. I think our worlds such, are so busy. It's such a
0: basic, hum- it's such a basic human. Yeah. I think that's a- neurologically hardwired somewhere is to feel seen and heard and understood by someone.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think we all we all really crave that. I don't know all the reasons why, but for sure. And I just think it's probably in mm-hmm. short order today. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is when I think you're trying to solve a problem with people, and like people who have been in HR for a long time know this, you know, sort of the wise sage grandma knows this in spades. Um, most people can solve their own shit if given a chance to sort of talk their way through it. So just listening And asking a few follow-up questions gives a person a chance to think their way through it and sort of come up with something. You sound like a genius when you sort of, like, have a conversation with somebody and they come to you with this problem. And, like, I challenge people to do this all the time. Like, don't give your opinion. Just listen and ask. Like, listen very carefully and ask a few, like... I get I get accused a lot of being a perpetual question asker for sure. And every once in a while someone accuses me of being a very good question asker and I'm, you know, I'm grateful for the compliment. But I often think it's like great questions are actually just downstream from actually listening. It's actually not that hard to ask a great question if you listened. Because what happens if you listen to people like you're a seven-year-old, great questions follow because you're not asking a question to prove how smart you are. You're asking a question to understand. And if you're asking a question to understand, then you A, have to really listen. And then B, when you're trying to understand it, you can then see the gaps in the story. Like I used to cross-examine people for a living in court, but I always thought about it very logically because I was listening to a story like I was a seven-year-old trying to make sense of it. And so as a prosecutor, that was actually really valuable because if you're listening like a seven-year-old who's trying to understand it, you will see the inconsistencies internally or externally with it. And then you just ask them about it. And then if you're, you know, trying to be good at your job as a prosecutor, then what you're actually doing is now I'm, now I'm going beyond what I do in a social, now I'm trying to trick you. So now I'm setting you up by doing it, but it has to start with listening. So back to the social context and back to helping people, when you listen to people and give them a chance to speak, there's an automatic sense that they're being, you know, positive feeling because they're being heard. But then what ends up happening is they can start to navigate. They, they can start to plot the points along the map because they're thinking out loud and they're being given a chance to go into uninterrupted. And then if you're really listening, you ask pointed questions that point things out. And, And as you ask them questions, they think through it more and more and more. So I think that is those are the, you know, you ask, what would I do if I met somebody? And I do, I do get into the situation where I, where I do that. Um, and then I think part three of that is, um, you have to just read the room at that point. And you may at that point have something very valuable to offer somebody. I think you just have to use a bit of wisdom in that situation. So I don't have a blanket rule on that. Sometimes that might just be enough for the person. Sometimes it becomes obvious to me by that point that they don't actually want help. That they actually, like, no matter what I say, I could tell them the, you know, the secret to the caramel, you know, the caramel bar and they wouldn't care. Like, you have to sort of use a little bit of wisdom. And there are some people who actually just don't actually want, they say they want help, but they don't, right. you know? so don't waste your breath at that point. It's okay. It's, now you're just talking for your own, you know, edification. So don't, um, sometimes they just need a word of encouragement. Um, hang in there. You'll get out of this. You'll come through it. You know, like sometimes they just need, need that. And then sometimes they actually want some practical, actionable advice. Um, Obviously, in my situation, if it's someone with a concussion, I'm usually, um, you know, ready and willing to say, I know I had a wicked concussion and it was super tough and happy to chat with you at any point in time if you want to chat about it, you know, that sort of thing. Um, yes, yeah, so I don't have a blanket rule, but I'd start with listening. Then I'd, as a natural extension of listening, really ask some important questions. And then I'd read the room in terms of what does this person need to hear next to help them out the most.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. I, I just I you know in in closing, I, I just I, I know I've said it before, but I, I do want to say that I want to thank you again for I know this is one of the first times that maybe you have mm-hmm. I know you've you've shared this with obviously with family members and with your wife and you know with your sort of inner circle. Um, but I want to thank you for your openness and your honesty and really describing in quite a bit of at sometimes excruciating detail what it's like to, have this concussion and some of the um grappling thoughts and uh, scenarios that you've had to uh, claw your way back from uh in many ways and I'm honored that uh you've chosen to do that with me and I hope I know that the my audience is going to find this valuable because as we've been talking about it extends beyond concussions yes concussions are a big we're all susceptible to having um concussions um uh, it's as simple as riding your bike down down the street on the way to work That's right. uh, as you've described um but i think that there's a lot of lessons here to extrapolate for life at large and all the verticals that really matter um that we've talked about so family and career and you know fitness and health and spirituality and relationships and parenting and 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 the list goes on and on so i i, I want to thank you for uh, for your time. And we'll, we'll do this again. I know, um, certainly, um, uh, at some point again on the podcast, but, um, it's just been wonderful, uh, hearing your story. And like I said, I know it's going to be very, very valuable for so many of my, my community and my audience.
1: will oh, well, um, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. You're a really, really, um, uh, excellent listener. And as I, yeah, as I said to you, we, we chatted about this offline before, but, um, no, I felt comfortable talking about this um, only after having spent a bit of time getting to know you and speaking with you and just recognizing that um, you'd be the right person for me to sort of um, articulate this to or answer questions about this. Because, yes, I was I was certainly um, reluctant to do so in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, the the credit belongs to you in terms of uh, my honesty about it today. Not that I'd ever be dishonest about it, but just sort of opening up and sharing a bit more. So. No. So thank you that, you know, credit goes to you for that. And, um, yeah, thank you. My, uh, my pleasure in doing so. Um, and happy to come on and chat more. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, at the end of the day, this all just comes down to, as I said, you know, coping with a concussion, coping with all these different external events that occur. Um, it's really just an opportunity to learn to manage life. And that's not meant to be some sort of, um, overly simplistic view To get people to shut up and move forward. It's, it's it's the opposite. It's actually an invitation to think deeper and to, as we've talked about, you know, cross examine life and to look in your soul and to figure stuff out and actually welcome this thing and say, this is an opportunity for me to ultimately improve as a human being. Other people around me have done it. Um, how can I go ahead and do that? And people will be, I think, you know, it'll make your life harder in the short term, but exponentially richer in the long term.